You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. In this week's episode, Father Paul continues his discussion of Genesis chapter 2 by explaining the critical connection and distinction between Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and Genesis chapter 2 verse 4. The latter repeats mention of the heavens and the earth from chapter 1 verse 1, but introduces the important phrase, Ele Toledot. This distinction, Father Paul explains, elevates chapter 1, verse 1 as the title and introduction not only to Genesis, but the entire Bible. I am happy to introduce Father Paul on Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. And now in verse 4, we have the mention of the Toledot for the first time in the same way as all the Toledots later will be presented. Ele Toledot. These are the Toledot of the heavens and the earth. Let me immediately talk about the importance of the fact that this Toledot, which is precisely a description of chapters 1 through 4, which includes 1, but in the other Toledot, that expression is mentioned at the beginning. It's the title of what we're talking about. So the question arises here, why isn't this title in Genesis 1.1? Especially that we have clearly the connection here because the entire verse 4 sounds thus, these are the Toledot, I don't like the word generations, the Toledot of the heavens and the earth, when they were created, in their having been created in Hebrew. So very clearly, the hearer understands that the author intentionally is connecting this verse 2, 4, with verse Genesis 1, 1. Let's hear it again. These are the Toledot. In their having been created in the day that the Lord had made the earth and the heavens. And we have again the verb asa to make. That is intentional, obviously. The question again is, why didn't the author say, begin, Ele Toledot? It is my conviction and the conviction of many authors that the author wanted to make out of 1-1, Genesis 1-1, a full introduction to the entire Bible. So already in 1-1, we have the introduction, the opening, not only of the book of Genesis, 
obviously not only of chapters 1 through 4, and not only of the book of Genesis, but of the entire Bible, where at the end, we shall hear it at the end of Isaiah, where you have a new heavens and earth, which is picked up in Revelation. So by putting, if you like, a title, and you remember when I discussed 1-1, I showed you that verse 2 of chapter 1 begins another statement. It doesn't follow verse 1. You will hear it in my comments on that verse. So let's not repeat it here. It's like a title of a book, totally in a full verse, meaning that the entire Bible, because it was one book, they were connected with one another, the three parts of the Old Testament. It is speaking about God being in full control with the world in which we live. And that is ominous that he is the boss. But at the same time, it's good news in the sense that he is the responsible and he will take care of that. And he's going to prove it in a few chapters where many of us would have liked to have another new brave world that God would destroy through the flood of everything and begin again. And this was discussed definitely in theology and philosophy. Is he not capable of doing that? And the answer is obviously philosophically, yes, he is capable. That's fine. But in scripture, he didn't do it. And that is the good news. But I'm putting the cart before the horse because I want my hearers to have still some hope I'm dealing with you here as the way Paul dealt with the Thessalonians in chapter 5 to remind you that the ominousness of God, his goot, his glory, his ego is unto our good, unlike the ego of the mountains and the buildings and the human being as he teaches us in Isaiah chapter 2. It is not good, but his is good. Again, here I'm sure everybody is imagining that I'm theologizing. No, I am not. I just want my hearers to understand that these things will be picked up later in the Bible. Again, one through four, we have the entire Bible in summary, and then we have the development later. It's really a powerful text. Let's go ahead. And in verse five, I'll say a few words, and then we'll leave it because this is a hinge between the previous and the following, which will be a concentration specifically on the human being, being the first production of God 
among the animal realm, not the vegetation though, because he plants a garden and he puts there the human being. So chapter two will be a development of the idea that the human being is in charge the way we heard at the end of chapter one. That's the interconnection between chapter two and chapter one. He's in charge, but he is not the center. And very quickly, his ego will take over and things start going bad very early. We don't have to wait for the flood, let alone Jacob and his children, let alone the people of Israel, let alone David. Everything is already there. So I'm going to finish here by showing how verse 5 is interconnected. When is added in English, but it makes sense. Verse 5 says, and when no plant of the field, we heard that expression, was yet in the earth, the yet obviously is added in the English, and no herb of the field, Aesib Hasadeh and Siyah Hasadeh, has sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon earth and there was no man to till the ground but we're going to hear to serve the ground so we're opening here if you like the beginning of chapter 2 it is as though one has to extend chapter 1 until 2 4 and then between 4 and 5 we have the hinge that is going to say well now Let me tell you in which sense the human being is to be responsible as it was announced on the sixth day. So it would be preferable if I would stop here because slowly on we're going to move. Notice that God did not cause it to rain yet and then a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the earth. We have the water giving life to the earth, which is very interesting. You see how God controls the waters. In chapter one, he pushed it aside to bring the land up. And here he's using the water to water the land and give life and so on. Remember when I discussed chapter one, I showed you that the water has two opposite functions. And then we have, then the Lord formed man of dust of the ground. And we have the connection between Adam and Adamha and breathed into his nostril the breath of life. The English authors have a difficult time distinguishing between bara and asa. In verses three and four, we have these two verbs used distinctively, and it's different than the bara that we have in one one, where there is no asa. Asa is basically doing, making. The bara, according to me, and I did it in many of my books, does not mean to create, which was taken by the authors as meaning ex nihilo, which is very funny because the Septuagint has the same verb. Epicen. So how did the people got the ex nihilo from philosophy out of nothing and so on? No, bara means to make functional. And I stressed this when I discussed the one day that we call the first day. 
like the earth. What's the earth? I have to tell you how it functions to be what it is. And it is God that does that. Hence the importance in Isaiah, which is connected with the salvation. In other words, the people were unto death. And then God gave them, quote, unquote, you know, life. They made them functional normally, not under the boot of someone else. And Isaiah, scholars have pointed this centuries ago, has a very high incidence of bara in the second part of the book that speaks about the salvation from the Babylonian exile. So that would be the idea that is in Hebrew and only in Hebrew. Again, the Greek can only invite you to listen more specifically to Hebrew. Because your question cannot be answered except in Hebrew. In verse 3, where we have bara la'asot, the Greek has something which is nice. The author went for two verbs, but suddenly he said, irksato o theos pise, which means God began to make. He shifted totally from bara to begin. Now, we don't need to enter into why, because my interest is not to understand the Greek. You know, I don't subscribe to this theory among Orthodox and even some Roman Catholic scholars that the Septuagint is inspired and so on. It's the text. It's the Bible. It's like the Baptists talk about the King James Bible. and so. No, it's not so. We have to stick with the Hebrew. That's why I say... And I repeat that the Bible has to be studied together. Together is not that everybody is on the same level and speak about that. No. We have one or more person of people who know the original and thus enlighten the hearers about the meaning of certain verb. And then we hear it. That's what I'm trying to do. I mean, the three of us are trying to do in our podcasts. So it is difficult. I agree with you. But the solution is to be found in the original. An interesting thing to which I appeal, and I learned a lot from it, is the Latin, which is very important. Here again, Jerome is really phenomenal. You know, He said, Quod creavit Deus ut faceret. Very interesting. He translates in order to do. I'm sure a teacher of Latin at school, at the university, will cross it off in red, as Professor Erickson used to do to many of your papers, and then write something. No, it doesn't work. Here again, when I say what I like about studying the Bible in Hebrew, in conjunction with the Septuagint and the Vulgate. And this has to be stressed, especially among the Orthodox, because many of them have not even heard about the Vulgate. It's just the Septuagint. So here we have a literal translation 
It means what it means, but I bet you a teacher of Latin will force you to correct that. But again, it's interesting for me because it draws your attention to the prologue of Sirach. Remember that passage. I did my best to find the right words, but practically it is impossible to hit the bull's eye every time. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.